Hi, I'm Connor Byrne, and this is That's What I Call Marketing, a podcast where you will hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique insights. Well, today marks a bit of a milestone for That's What I Call Marketing. This is our 50th episode. So first of all, thanks to the thousands of you that have listened. I really appreciate it. And all the messages that are sent with comments and suggestions for future guests, I really love getting them. So please continue to send them to us. And to mark the 50th episode, I'm taking you all the way to Saudi Arabia. Yes, this is a great episode. We're going to be meeting Hamir Alaboy, who is the CMO of Tim Hortons Middle East. He spent over 20 years agency side with BBDO, working with global clients, helping them establish their brands in the region. Before moving client side to help establish and grow brilliant Canadian brand, Tim Hortons across the Middle East. This is a fascinating discussion as we delve into how global brands approach new market entry and how that had to change in the Middle East. How things have changed in the region, the positive impact that is having on the marketing industry. We talk about the importance of understanding local culture, the role of strategic planning, his move to client side and what changed for him, the role of a marketer in product and innovation and owning customer insights. Sound familiar? Well, we've so much to get through. So don't forget to subscribe to That's What I Call Marketing, wherever you're listening or watching. And if we can help you with your growth through marketing, visit that's what I call marketing.com and see how we can help. Today's episode of That's What I Call Marketing is brought to you by the Indie List. Ireland's leader for freelance marketing, creative and digital talent. The Indie List provides easy access to hundreds of highly experienced and vetted experts across the marketing services business, quickly and cost effectively. You can check out their full range of services at IndieList.ie. Thank you so much for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing. It's great to, great to have you here. Pleasure is mine. Um, well, listen, for, for people listening or watching who, who may not have heard of you yet, can you give a brief introduction? Sure. So I am currently the regional CMO for Tim Hortons Middle East. But prior to that, 22 years of my career was spent in the organized chaos of the world of advertising. I was very loyal, mind you, because those 22 years was spent with one agency which yeah. many might know, it's called BBDO. In the UK, it's AMB. In the Middle East, it's called Impact BBDO. So I spent 22 years with them between the UAE, Saudi, Qatar, setting up shop in Pakistan for a PepsiCo client. And then COVID happened. And I think during okay. COVID, a lot of us took a step back, had time to reflect and self-reflect. And I realized that I had to step out of my comfort zone, take on a new challenge. Luckily, wow. I only have one child who's only three, so he's not too demanding at this point. <laughs> and uh, given the fact that my parents um, settled in Canada for the past 15, 20 years, whenever I visited Canada, all I could see and all anyone could talk about was Tim Hortons. Yeah. Right? As in Starbucks doesn't even exist in Canada in terms of spontaneous awareness or top of mind awareness. So I was fascinated by this brand. and. Tim Hortons was a late bloomer because unlike all these other multinational brands that expanded globally 20 years ago, Tim Hortons only started their international journey 15 years ago, starting yeah. in Dubai. And in the past five years, they've expanded to the Philippines, Mexico, India, Pakistan, Spain, and so many more. So it's a brand that always fascinated me. 
So when they shifted their regional HQ to Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, and they called me regarding this role, it didn't take more than two minutes and a cup of coffee for me to say yes. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's amazing. Well, like, I want to get into all of that because there's so much to, to, to talk about, but I'd love to talk a bit about your, your time at B BBDO. And as you say, you're covering quite a, quite a big region. I'd love to kind of understand a bit more about the work that you did there and how that operated. So the key clients I worked on at BBDO for the first, let's say, 15, 16 years of my career were mostly FMCG, primarily okay. PepsiCo, because the Middle East is probably the third or fourth largest geography for PepsiCo worldwide. I was responsible for both the beverages business as well as the stacks business. And okay. in specific is the fourth largest market for PepsiCo worldwide, which is wow. super impressive because relative to the region, it's a big population. Relative to the world, we're only 32, 33 million people. Yeah. For 32 or 33 million people to have such a high consumption capita is phenomenal. And then towards the last couple of years, specifically in Saudi, everything has been mostly government. As in, I'm sure everybody who is living outside of the kingdom have noticed that there's been a lot of transformation and change. You know, there are yeah. football cups and they're launching all these tropical and exotic destinations. So there's so many projects happening right now. So if you talk to anyone within the advertising or media world or consultancy world for that matter, 90% of their clients today would be the government. I'd love to understand actually a bit about the, the agency landscape. You know, I mean, you mentioned obviously BBDO, it's known globally. Is it mostly, you know, structured as in kind of global shops, you know, in, in, in Saudi and, and, and the region, or is there a lot of mix of kind of local and global? A lot of, lot of mix, especially in the last 10 years, to be honest. You know, when I joined in 2001, that's when I started my career, Saudi and the region only had multinationals. And that was the price set, and that was the expectation from clients. And then when Saudi went through its first transformation in 2010, and given the fact that 70% of the population are below the age of 30. So you can imagine how crucial they are towards the success and development of this kingdom. Clients started realizing that consumers are not just looking for international brands, but they're looking for brands that can connect locally from a nuanced perspective, from a messaging perspective, from an insights perspective, so between 2010 to 2020, all of a sudden you had a new wave of local agencies or you had a new mindset and structure that multinational agencies adopted. So we started right. hiring locals, which we never did in the past. We started mentoring them, developing them, spending quality time trying to understand the culture, which we never did for 10 years because we had right. so much money and so much pull. And it was all about positioning yourself as this strong international brand. But everything changed in 2010. And even more so after this young prince came to power and truly empowered his community. He only came to power in 2017 and 18. And that's where okay. everything just became, I don't know how to describe it, you know, but um, it's like having acid for the very first time. That's what this country witnessed. Because many don't realize that and it might sound quite basic, but 
we didn't have cinemas. Women couldn't drive. Women could not, you know, work in multiple sectors. They could only work in schools and hospitals once upon a time. Yeah. So he came into power and overnight he said, this is bullshit. This is not the way Saudi and Saudis used to live in the 80s. This has to change. And wow. literally within a few months, women started driving. Women started entering the workforce. And women represent 42% of the Saudi population. And you have hundreds yeah. and thousands of Saudi females graduating every year who actually want to work. But they couldn't work because, number one, <clears throat> they come from a traditional society where their parents would not even allow them to take an Uber to work because they'd be taking an Uber with a man that's not related to them. So all of a sudden right. now, they're female Uber drivers. They can drive themselves. The world has changed, literally, overnight. So it sounds to me like it was, it was okay for a big global brand to come and say, you know, we're Pepsi or whoever, and here's our thing, and, you know, we're, we're, we're big, we're beautiful. And, and, and then it was like, this kind of need for you to get into much more of those kind of insights and local nuances. The scale and size of the region, right? It's huge. <laughs> You've lots of different countries. How did you approach that as an agency and how did you look at kind of the insights? So that's when the role of strategic planning actually came to life. So many agencies tend to, I think, work on and leverage their laurels of being an international brand with a certain level of equity and certain values. Yeah. But if you truly want to succeed in certain parts of the world, specifically this region, there are massive markets. Saudi is a very hardcore Saudi market where majority of the population are local. And yes, they've studied abroad, they've traveled abroad, but they're still Saudi and they're proud. And then you have Egypt, which is 100 million plus, and that's a different culture entirely. So yeah. we came to realize was strategic planning and insights became so critical. And you can't just expect a regional planner to plan for a region. You need yeah. domestic planners per market to feed the regional planning director with insights and tension points. And that's exactly yeah. what we did. And it made a massive difference. And another thing which we had to really push our clients to understand and adopt a lot of the HQs prior to 2021, 2022 were based in Dubai. Now, Dubai, if you've been, it's a fantastic place. I love going to Dubai. Yeah. I'd love to settle and retire in Dubai. But Dubai <laughs> is a bubble. When I say it's a bubble, Dubai is not okay. an accurate representation of the Arab world. And that's why it's been such a magnet for non-Arabs. Right. My drift. But yeah, yeah, yeah. when regional headquarters and CMOs and my clients sitting in Dubai, sometimes they get stuck in that bubble where they assume that anything that works in Dubai can work for the region, which is so not the case. Yeah. The case. And that's the biggest mistake a lot of multinationals do, that they tend to look after the region from Dubai without realizing how critical it is to personalize and customize and localize. How did you, how did you communicate that then to you know, to those global clients that you had? Because that's, that's a challenge, you know, kind of saying, we're different. Like, yeah, everyone's different. Yeah, it's a really good question, and I'll answer it in two levels. The first one is data. So data has become really big, right, in the last four or five years. And it took this whole data transformation 
for clients to truly understand what they were doing was wrong. Right. To that, we were shooting from the hip and we weren't able to put together a comprehensive or substantial argument. But with so much data, especially in the social and digital world, it is very clear what works and what doesn't work. So the first thing I did when I went to PepsiCo was I accessed our listening tools and CRM tools. And I said 68% of the Saudi population search in Arabic. They search right. in Arabic. You and me, we go straight to Google English, right? And we Google it. Yeah. They search in Arabic. None of PepsiCo's content at that time was in Arabic. So how are we talking to the right audience? That's number one. Number two is, unlike the rest of the world where we Google it, Saudis don't Google it. To the extent right. that when I was handling Google for two years, they asked us to develop a search campaign to promote Google search. Because in Saudi, right. when people search, they use YouTube and Twitter. Okay. So you would not know unless you live here and you interact with Saudis, right? So yeah. these insights, these tension points validated with data was how we were able to convince clients and make clients understand that we're looking at it the wrong way. And look at the potential yeah. flip side. We're already doing well, talking in English, talking to the wrong consumer, most likely. Imagine if we spoke their language and hit the right relevant target audience. Yeah, and I guess then from there, you get to start, you know, making the work that was more, you know, in touch with the, the, the local culture. And how did the work transform? Listen, it was quite tough because it was a learning curve for us as well as a multinational right. agency, as a multinational team, even the client, to be very honest. So this was the starting point on when we started recruiting local talent, both on the client side as well as the agency side. So what was happening for the first year is we were adapting rather than adopting. Yeah, yeah. And you yeah. adapt, you make mistakes, to be very honest, right? So sometimes we would just adapt an English headline to an Arabic headline without truly validating it or giving it the right dialect or angle. So we did make some inroads, but consumers made a lot of fun of us at times. <laughs> Yeah, I remember so many comments on social media where customers would literally call us out. They'd be like, your copywriter is definitely not Saudi, but your copywriter is a Google Translate. Yeah, It's fine. It took some yeah. time, but I think uh, many multinational brands and agencies have truly got yeah. to act together and truly understand how important it is. And when I say how important it is, when you look at a market like Egypt or a market like Saudi, the copy and the dialect differs according to regions. So if we're yeah. talking to a customer in the coastal city of Jeddah, we have to speak to them in a certain way. When we're talking to a customer in the capital where I am in Riyadh, we have to speak to them in a certain way. So that's how segmented and detailed it is. Yeah, yeah, it's um, again fascinating. I was lucky enough to have a similar experience. I did some work in India, and you know, again, just the number of different languages, and you know, it's just it's a minefield. You have to really, I think, when you're not from a place, you have to really kind of two things. I think be interested enough to learn enough about it, but know what you don't know, and then rely on local expertise, and and that is 
that is a journey. Um, you mentioned there the, the concept of search, and you know people were searching are searching YouTube and and Twitter. Can you tell me a bit more about the media landscape generally? So, given the population is so young, you're talking about predominantly Gen Z and millennials, super hyper connected. When it comes to platforms like YouTube and Instagram, I think Saudi is rated top two or top three in the world, which is very, very impressive. When you look at the number of mobile phones that exist in Saudi, it's 1.4 per person. Per person. <laughs> 1.4. You know, one of my friends who's the head of marketing at Samsung told me this fact. And if you research it online, you'll get the same. So they love their screens. And they utilize their screens not just to communicate, but also for gaming. Gaming is super yeah. massive in this region. But what you just have to realize, and this is a global phenomenon as well as a local phenomenon, that you're talking to someone on Instagram, you have to be more visual, right? More visual driven. If you're talking to someone on Twitter, it's more copy. If you're talking to them on TikTok or Snapchat, there's another persona that comes to life. Yeah. The beauty about this region is that all of these platforms have come to life, especially post-COVID. I think that's very similar and relevant to lots, lots of countries. I know I was in, I've only been to Dubai once and so it's probably wrong to, to take that as any sort of uh, way of looking at media landscape. But one thing I was super uh, envious of was the size of the out of home in Dubai. I was like, oh my God, because what, and I don't know if that's the same in other parts of the region, but I was like, wow you can do exceptionally beautiful work on uh, out of home. They were like, you know, I don't know what, what size they were, but they're just immense. Is that the same in other parts of the region? Do you have that 100%. opportunity in huge yeah, so format? We call them, um, so, you know, they're mega, mega billboards per se and giant hoardings on Sheikh's yeah. Road in Dubai. And this has been adopted across multiple markets. And we're quite fortunate because if you truly want to make a bang, and create impact yeah. in a short time, outdoor is still the way to go. And what's really nice about this region, because everything is fairly new, and we have so many modern tech-savvy buildings, not only are we advertising on these giant outdoor hoardings or screens, we're also reflecting our brand on buildings, like the Burj Khalifa, yeah. as you know, in Dubai, yeah. right? Yeah. They are nice enough to portray and project the flags of every nation who has an independence or national day. But you can also invest in promoting your brand or launching your brand and reflecting it on the Burj Khalifa. And that same wow. will exist across all other GCC markets too. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a, the, when I see, you probably saw uh, the Sphere in Las Vegas have announced that you can advertise. And I saw one, I don't know if it was a mock-up or a real one, but it was look, it was a basketball, so obviously it suited the shape of that. I was like, I was like, oh my god, that's amazing! So these, I think, those constant innovations in in formats and and ability to to communicate are are really really interesting. And in terms then of media, you know, are there are there restrictions in place? Like, are there some things that just you know are difficult to do today? Absolutely not. No, years ago, right. definitely ten years ago, if I wanted to feature a female model on outdoor, I would have to blur her eyes and her face. <laughs> wow, okay. How conservative yeah. it was once upon a time. But today, everything is as open as it gets. Yeah. It's, there's things, again, on a global marketing team, you're not going to know that ever. So that's why the importance of, of the, the local knowledge. 
And I'd love to talk about a bit about the role of creativity. I don't know, you're speaking at a creativity conference. What what are the kind of things you're going to be saying and, and, and talking about yeah. without giving it all away? So I'll tell you what, I, coming from an advertising background, I truly, I wouldn't say worship, it's the wrong word, because many people in advertising tend to do so. I value how important creativity is. I do like winning awards as long as they're effective and real. We live in a yeah. world where there's so much spam and stuff, <laughs> stuff. but uh, it is what it is. That's an art in itself. But to break creative boundaries, you need to truly understand tension points and local insights, you know? And luckily for us in developing markets, there's so many tension points. Yeah. Markets that were culturally quite strict or traditional and are now opening up, there's even more tension points. So my advice and my recommendation and what I'm going to talk about is the fact that you need to test and validate everything that comes to mind with the right customer or customer set. Don't shoot from the hip. Don't just rely on data alone, but be practical and realistic as well, which is very, very important. Yes, you have to take gambles and risks, but we live in a world where everything can be more calculated than ever before. And be brave and be daring because 10 years yeah. ago, whenever we spoke about creativity, my boss or the creative director would want to execute or amplify only in Dubai or in Bahrain or in Egypt, never in Saudi. But the trick is, even for a jury member, for a judge at Cannes or another awards event, is when you do something that's perceived to be quite strict or difficult in the market, and then it came to life and it made a difference and it touched the consumer and made impact. So that's exactly what creativity is about. You are listening to That's What I Call Marketing, a partnership with The Indie List, where you will find experienced and vetted marketing talent, people like me, and also people who design and people who write. You get the idea. Check out theindielist.ie. You are listening to That's What I Call Marketing. Do you need help growing your business through marketing? Well, check out our services at thatswhaticallmarketing.com. Get in touch today and see how we can help. Yeah, and it's I, I think the balance of the bravery, but also the testing. How do you approach the, like that concept of testing? Like you're testing, you're validating. How do you go about doing that? So I only came to know this um, when I shifted to the client side. Yeah. So whenever we launched a new SKU, even for example, on the client side, you would always have a test market, which would be one small city that would be more or less representative. Representative. Yeah. So that's exactly what we typically do when we have a big campaign, whether it's a thematic campaign, whether it's a tactical campaign, whether it's a very unique SKU that's truly going to serve as a game changer in a category, we would actually do a small test market. And that would be our basis of how we optimize, how we correct ourselves yeah. and how we move forward. Brilliant. And neatly bringing us on to, to Tim Hortons, I mean, you, you, you started by telling us that kind of journey that brought you to Tim Hortons. Um, and amazingly, you know, you knowing it's a, a Canadian brand. I, I actually think a lot of people this part of the world may not know it's Canadian. Was, am I right? He was, a, he was a hockey player? He was a hockey player, correct. Yeah. four is when Tim Hortons was launched. And unfortunately, sadly, he passed away in a car crash. And he never got to see how oh. successful this brand became, which was a pity. Oh, wow. Which was, I didn't know that, actually. So... 
the international expansion, obviously, you know, and you're right, like Tim Hortons is kind of, uh, yeah, it may not be as well known, but it's got huge ambitions. I mean, am I right in saying there's over 250 stores in in the region or that, or is that the ambition to get there for, for Tim Hortons? So now we have touched 292 stores. Okay. The GCC, out of which 140 plus would be in Saudi. And our ambition is 500 stores by 2025. Wow. Although that's a massive accomplishment in the short period of time because we've been playing catch up. If you look at the competition, Connor, Dunkin' Donuts has 500 plus stores in Saudi alone. Right. Starbucks has 700 to 800 stores in the region alone. Now, right. Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts came here 21 years ago, so they have a massive head start. So we are playing catch-up, but I enjoy it because it's a challenger brand. It's a challenge. Okay. Literally, we're talking about five to six stores a month. Wow. That's a lot. And how do, how is kind of, a, I guess, the business structure in a way, without getting into too much detail, but like, is it, it, does Tim Hortons operate as a, as a kind of a business unit outside of the other kind of, franchises that that master franchisee owns like is it seen as kind of like it's company this is tim hortons and we we run our PL, we run our marketing and, you know, yes yeah. so we all effectively do report to the parent company which is rbi rbi owns tim hortons burger king popeyes and um, firehouse subs which is a competitor to subway north america but all of our regions operate independently and we have our own PLs and we try and localize and customize according to the region. So yes, we are building and serving that international experience that customers are looking for when they go to an international brand, but we also make sure to localize and customize our menu offering and our experience to satisfy yeah. that mindset. How do you, how does that localization work? Is that, um, is that something you get involved with as well? Because you have the customer insights? Yes. So interestingly enough, and this was the first time for me when I joined as the CMO, my boss told me that you're also responsible for uh, innovation, R&D and quality control. <laughs> I was like, what? But to be honest, it's full circle, right? Because yeah. as marketeers, we understand consumers. We understand triggers. Yeah. We understand the desires. We were the first ones to know about feedback. So it only makes sense, right, for us to determine what products could potentially work best, their price points, and everything relevant to the same. So similarly to how one would go anywhere in the world, and if they go to McDonald's, they expect a Big Mac to taste like a Big Mac. Yeah, We want yeah. our signature products to also taste exactly like what you'd experience in Canada, Tim Hortons. So if you go anywhere in the world and ask for our famous French vanilla, or our brewed coffee, it's consistent. And it's so consistent that we are day in, day out monitoring the product and feeding back to global. So for certain right. things, we don't mess around. Like for example, <laughs> bagels. For you, somebody in Europe, bagels is a common thing. But bagels in this part of the world is not very common. Bagels is something a student would have encountered when he or she studied in Europe or North America. So we couldn't find a good bagel supplier in the regions. Right. We source our bagels from Canada. Imagine we source our bagels from Canada because we don't right. mess around when it comes to certain products. So, so we don't mess around with our coffee. 
We don't mess around with our French vanilla. We don't mess around with our bagels. And we try not to mess around with our donuts either. Yeah, I was going to ask about the donuts, yeah. So in this region, it's a bit tricky because in the Arab world, obesity is quite common. <laughs> Let's Rough. be honest about it. They love sugar and they love sweets. And if you go to a Krispy Kreme and a Dunkin' Donuts, you will get that sugar rush in four seconds, you know, <laughs> and you'll be shaking. And if you look at your fingers, they'll be so shiny because of all the oil. When you go to Hortons, it's almost going to like a diet shop because our donuts are catered for a certain different uh, taste palette, in all honesty. So one, one uh, RTB I use with my friends is if you go to Tim's and you have our donuts, it's like having a cheat meal. And the calories you have with our donuts are probably 50% less than the competition. And they get so excited and they call me the next, yeah, day, yeah. you know, I went to Tim Hortons, I had your donuts, I feel so good. And a lot of people say, Ahmed, why don't you insert these claims? But to be honest, I still feel that audience is niche. So I'm still debating in my mind how to position our donuts because we don't sell a lot of donuts in the Middle East, believe it or not. What other products have you brought in that are maybe not available in other parts of the world or have you got there yet? So for example, uh, if you come to us for breakfast, we have a halloumi mint muffin. Halloumi is quite common even in the Mediterranean, let alone the Arab world. So we introduced a halloumi mint muffin. We introduced something called a labne croissant. Labne is just, you know, um, so it's more of a pasteurized form of yogurt that we use as a spread. And um, even when it comes to um, vegetarians and vegans, we serve something called falafel, which is something yeah. common in this world. And um, there's also um, a couple of beverages that we've localized. So, for example, uh, Spanish latte became a global phenomenon at one point, right? Everybody okay. Spanish latte or an nice Spanish latte. In this part of the world, because they're so into sweet and condensed liquids, we made our Spanish latte with condensed milk and not fresh oh, milk, wow. which is the case in the UK or anywhere else in the world. And a lot of brands followed us. And we continue to do that because that was what the local appetite was desiring. And it's working really well. It's one of our best sellers. You, you touched on kind of global. How does that relationship work with, from a marketing perspective, I think spe specifically, with the global Tim Hortons team? What's the kind of structure and interactions you have? So I'll tell you this. It's a friendly debate. When I was working on PepsiCo, PepsiCo was organized quite differently because their key markets were global. In the right. Tim Hortons, Canada on its own is a beast. You're talking about 7,000 plus Tim Hortons stores, maybe more by now, right? Every few yeah. minutes, there's another Tim Hortons. So in the case of uh, Global, it's also a new experience for the parent company. So they do want to push certain products and certain beverages. It's a question of saying, all right, but we need to test and sound check this to make sure that yeah. we're going to click and connect with the local audience. Having said that, certain products are so new, but they're also very ownable. So when people think of Canada, people might think of maple. So yeah. many a time we're experimenting on how to create a maple sauce, whether it's sweet or whether it's tangy, that we can infuse in our sandwiches or donuts. So we create something ownable, but that would still be appealing to the local audience. And one crucial role is uh, the chef. 
So I have a chef in my team. Her name is Sosa. Wow. She's Canadian Lebanese. She used to work at Dean and Luca. And then more recently in the region, she worked for Alsaya, which is the parent company of Starbucks. And she is doing this day in, day out. She's constantly trying new things, testing the same amongst customers in store. And whatever is shortlisted by herself and by the management, we then do a larger consumer taste test. That's brilliant. That's really exciting. That frontline piece of marketing. I think, you know, sometimes we don't get to do that. But go back to that healthy um, discussion that you have with, with the global teams. Um, is that also part of kind of your, your discussions around how our marketing looks and feels here? Yes. So it comes down to the look and feel and the messaging. So the messaging has to be localized and localized to perfection. And the channels and platforms that you use also have to be very specific. So, for example, you asked me earlier if TV is still big. TV is big when it comes to watching football. Okay. Right? When yeah. It's a football-loving nation, even more so in the last couple of months, because all of a sudden we have Neymar and Benzema and Ronaldo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God knows who. But when we watch football, we watch football on large screens. But when it comes to everything else, it's a laptop, it's an iPhone, it's an iPad, in all honesty. So it's about choosing the right platforms as well. And RBI, the parent company, and Tim Hortons Global, they do understand this. And they do give us a lot of leeway and flexibility. But they want to ensure that the brand is also safeguarded. So yeah. everything yeah. that we do develop is shared with the parent company from a legal sign-off perspective as well as a creative FYI, if I can add. Yeah, yeah. Which is, again, I think that's a fair and reasonable relationship to have, you know, with that. And, you know, and I, I think probably as well, it's about the trust and the more that gets built up over over extended periods of time, you know, then, as you say, it's probably more of a FYI, here's the thing we're doing versus, you know, I need to share the brief. Ultimately, they want to they want to drive their business globally. We want to drive our business and the better we do, the better they do. And across all markets, we have brand health trackers, which are specific to markets. And it's presented to us. It's presented to them. So as we say, the proof is in the pudding. So you want to do well in a certain market and you understand how critical that market is because it's not dominated by expats. It's dominated by locals. And you need to be more local. And this is something yeah. we've realized, you know, and I came on board a year ago and um, we were working with agencies based in Dubai who are looking after Saudi. And I'm not saying that they're not competent. They are very competent. But unless you live and breathe Saudi, unless you truly are Saudi, you're physically here. Yeah. You'll be able to build on the nuances, the trends, the platforms, and so on and so forth. So that's exactly what we're doing. We're localizing our agency for Saudi. We already localized our agency for a market like Kuwait, which is also quite unique. Whereas when it comes to the UAE, Dubai, and other Gulf markets, you can have a more international approach. Okay. Yeah, hence about knowing knowing that. Um, you touched a bit on the brand health. What what are the kind of the key KPIs that you're you're looking at? I mean, is it brand health, cup sold? Like what's the... What's the range of, of KPIs? So we have our um, business KPIs and we have our brand and consumer KPIs. So yes, we're looking at 
coffee consumption, visitation, because naturally, if you're able to have someone consume more coffee, chances are he or she will stay more loyal and continue visiting your store. But we're also looking for experiential and emotional um, attributes. So, you know, do you love the brand? Do you love coming to a Tim Hortons? Do you feel at home when you come to a Tim Hortons? Would you recommend Tim Hortons to a friend? And so on and so forth. So we take our brand health tracker very seriously because yeah. as retailers, and I spoke about this at an event called um, Seamless with my CMO uh, last year, we truly take design engineering very seriously. So when you go to a Tim Hortons, you would not imagine how much time, effort, and money we spent on attempting to ensure and reinforce the journey and experience that you will have in store. Yeah. And that brings me to a really important question, which I'm posed to all the time. What do you consider a success? I start with what do I consider as failure? For me, <laughs> if the transaction between a customer and Tim Hortons is purely financial, then I have failed and we have failed right. as a company. But if that transaction was emotive, and something that we can build on, then we are leaning towards the path of success. And we truly believe in this because yeah. it invests so much time and effort and money on selecting the furniture, on selecting the table. Like, for example, if you go to a Tim Hortons in the region, you sit down on a table, we have wireless charging units on the table because we realize that customers today need to remain connected. And it's a bit yeah, of a yeah. pain to plug in an adapter or sometimes you yeah, forget, yeah. forget, right? Yeah. You, you don't want to carry a power cord or a power bank. So we have yeah. chargers on tables. So all you have to do is pick up your phone and boom, and it's going to charge. So we're trying to make the interiors and the exteriors accustomed to the journey of the customer. I'm loving with the way you're talking about it and everything is... The expression of the brand in how the consumer engages and interacts with it. Like we've actually talked very little really about the advertising or any of that, because that's, you know, often we spend so much time focused on that and making the emotional connection. And yes, it's a very important role. And, but it's all the other parts of that experience that help enhance that emotional connection. Because you can do wonderful advertising and you can have people go, oh, you know, I didn't know there was a Tim Hortons. I'm going to try it out. And then it all fails, you know, it, then the knock-on effect of that, you know, is even, would you tell a friend? Yes, I'll tell a friend. It was terrible. I'd love to talk a bit about your, your team and how that's structured. I'm responsible for uh, the GCC and eventually the Middle East when we expand to Egypt, which is a market we're looking at and it's a matter of time. But currently I'm focusing on the GCC and my team is divided into clusters. So I have a cluster marketing lead for three markets and another cluster marketing lead for another three markets. We have an amazing CEO who gives us a lot of freedom um, to take risks, you know, and to take gambles. And that's exactly what I preach to my team members as well. You know, make mistakes, you know, as in yeah. make as many mistakes, but make sure you learn from those mistakes and you don't repeat them again. But uh, mistakes are absolutely normal. And for all of us, you know, some of us come from a retail background, some don't. Like my CEO and my management took a gamble when they took me. I don't have retail experience. Yeah. I do have F&B experience, but it's from an agency perspective. But that's exactly what they wanted. They wanted 
a fresh perspective and someone who knows Saudi and the consumer. So that's why they look for someone who has an agency background more than someone who's already in F&B retail. So that's exactly what I tell my team. We all have fresh perspectives. We all have uh, opinions. And we should take as many opinions and place them on the table and then start scrutinizing what could potentially work. And then we go through the process of testing, validation, and optimizing. So it's an integrated effort. It's definitely very harmonious. And that's the culture that Tim Hortons actually spreads globally. You know, our, I wouldn't say our tagline, but our motto is always fresh. Okay. We truly believe in it. So that's yeah. exactly the mindset we also adopt when it comes to uh, human resources and talent, that we want people who will always think with a fresh, perspe fresh perspective and a fresh mindset. And that's what's going to help us you know, penetrate through the rough waters and come out on top. I love always fresh because it does allow you have that permission to think fresh things within marketing, which is you know, liberating in some ways there. And I think that culture of permission to make mistakes, but learning from them is, is so important. And it's not, all, not always there. And, and I think, are there things you do kind of as a leader to, to, to kind of give the security of people that like, yeah, look, it's okay. You know, that didn't work. Yeah, like, how do, you, how do you create that, I guess, the culture more than the words? 100%. I think the added value that I'm able to bring to the table and rationalize when I talk to my team members is the 22 years spent in the advertising world. Because in the advertising world, it truly prepares you for war. Because you're wearing four to five different hats per day, right? You start your morning talking about PepsiCo. Three hours later, you're talking about chips. Four hours later, you're talking about Telco. And seven hours later, you're talking about Pampers, you know, in the world of P&G. So yeah, yeah. You, get, you really prepare yourself for all sorts of situations. And that's yeah. made mistakes in multiple categories, targeting multiple consumers. So the learning curve is so immense and so rich that I'm able to narrate these instances to my team and said, yeah. this was the mistake and this is how we rectified it. So make your mistakes, but also have a game plan on how you intend to rectify or optimize. So I'm able to bring the potential mistake or the potential gamble down to earth. And I think that's how I connect more strongly with my team members. Uh, that's, that's great. And I think you're right. I love that agency prepares you for war and, and just the differences. Like I remember, I worked in an agency and you'd be like, like that. Like one minute it was a soft drink, the next it was poker, and then it was like Hadoop developers. Like it's like, it couldn't be more different. It's you crazy, know, kind of figure out what crazy. but one thing I regret, and I say this all the time, when I became a client, I realized how much data I have and how much data I never gave to my agency. And yeah. it is such a crime that I would use a word I wouldn't typically use on your show. But it's such a crime because it's such basic but critical data that could benefit your agency so much. So I'm really surprised that clients are so protective of data. I understand when it comes to profitability and anything P&L related. Yeah. But for example, when I joined Tim Hortons, the first campaign I did, I was able to realize in less than three days that Riyadh is more of a black coffee market. Jeddah, because it's been the gateway to Makkah and Medina, is more of an espresso-based market. So I okay. changed my offering in Jeddah 
from brewed coffee to a cappuccino, and my sales spiked. Imagine if you right. told the agency the same, right? Yeah, but clients yeah. never tend to share data, unfortunately, and that's such a crime because you can stretch and extract so much better and more effective communication and thinking if you do share data. I completely agree with you. I'm so glad you said that because I, I completely, and I had the same realization when I went client side. You know, I was like, oh my God, like there's, there's so much that I wasn't told in an agency, you know? Do, do you find, how are you finding the, ch the change? Because it, like it is, a, it is a shift, it's a change. Um, how, how are you finding it? So it's a massive learning curve. So I'm learning a yeah. lot, so no regrets. And um, I'm enjoying the challenge of uh, implementing and building a challenger brand across multiple markets. And each market is a different cup of coffee, so to speak. From a cultural perspective, definitely you miss the ad world, right? Because yeah, yeah. it's that organized chaos, but it's amazing chaos. And I do miss it at times. The client side is more corporate, so it takes a bit mm. to adapt, transition, and accept. Uh, but ultimately, on the client side, you do have full control of the brand, yeah. right? On the agency side, we could recommend, we could build strong relationships with our clients, but ultimately, we did not have the last mile, so to speak, Yeah. right? So on the client side, you do. So you feel far more in control from that perspective. And But what's interesting now, again, I suppose you, you're, you, you're realizing as well the last mile piece. And it's just, again, that's the communication piece, I think. We, we're in the communication business and we don't do a great job between agency and client. 100%. What agencies should also realize, in all honesty, and I never took this into consideration, was for marketing and marketeers to be successful, you have to align so many functions within the company. Yeah, yeah. You can't just launch a campaign. You have to speak to operations. You have to speak to supply chain. You have to speak to R&D. You have to speak to finance. You have to speak to projects. So you have to align so many functions. But what's really interesting about that on a personal level as well is that your exposure just widens, you know? So within a year at Tim Hortons, I am, I've learned a lot about client-side marketeering and communication, but I've also learned so much about supply chain, so much about R&D, so much about finance, yeah. so much about operations and in-store experience and customer satisfaction. So it's been amazing from that perspective. And all of these things count and they're all interconnected yeah. to deliver success. Amazing. Lemir, thank you so much for spending time with me today. It was absolute pleasure. I was so thrilled to connect with you and we got to set this up. Sure. And uh, you're, you're my, my first guest from, from Middle East and from, from Saudi to, to come on the show. And I'm really thrilled. And, you know, hopefully, you know, that this will help us get more listeners and, and more great marketers from the region. Pleasure is mine. What an absolute treat it was to chat to Amir. While there are clearly differences in the landscape he operates in, the challenges are largely the same. The ways to win are also largely the same. This doesn't mean marketing is easy because we have so much in common. It just means that we are dealing with humans, you know, people. And while they are nuanced, often they're quite similar. So that's it for this episode, our 50th. Thanks again for listening to That's What I Call Marketing. If you did enjoy this episode, please do share, subscribe. You can get in touch and find all previous episodes on That's What I Call Marketing.com. Follow us on Instagram on That's What I Call Marketing for some shorter clips and on 
Twitter or X at that's underscore marketing, where we talk about all sorts of things to do with marketing. You can watch our episodes back on YouTube. Yes, you guessed it. That's what I call marketing. And if we can help you with your brand grow through marketing, get in touch. Visit us at that's what I call marketing.com. Thanks again to the Indie List for their support of this show. If you need experienced, excellent marketing talent, go to theindielist.ie. Don't go anywhere else. Theindielist.ie. 